0: Hey, we're in the book of Exodus tonight. We're in chapter 24. We're looking at a message called The Blood of the Covenant. So find your place in Exodus chapter 24. Just a couple of other quick things that I wanted to give to you. Um, Tomorrow morning, there's a National Day of Prayer event at Eagle Glen Golf Course. Uh, I've told you a few times about it. I don't know if you got tickets, but if you didn't get tickets, it's 7 to 8.30 in the morning um, just be praying that that event will go well. It does have an evangelistic uh, emphasis on it. So just pray that people will come to know the Lord. It's, it's uh, often city officials and uh, different churches represented. So that's happening tomorrow morning. Uh, just a reminder also that You guys support a radio program called Walk in Truth that is airing in several different states and now being heard by, I don't even remember how many countries Rob Newton just told me, but uh, Belgium, Spain, uh, India, uh, people are picking up the podcast all over the world. It's amazing to see what God is doing. It's awesome. And uh, just be praying that the Lord will take it wherever he wants it to go. One of the things that we've added for those of you who uh, follow that is we've added something called a step closer. It's actually changed and morphed a few different times. But we're doing like a a extra podcast in addition to the radio broadcast where we're dealing with specific topics. And we, Joe Kelly and I, had a conversation on the resurrection that's up there. So if you subscribe to the podcast You'll get access to a step closer. You can hear some more in-depth discussion about the proof of the resurrection, more from the standpoint of maybe an evidential side in 1 Corinthians 15 and that kind of thing. And we, Shane and I, Pastor Shane and I, are talking about doing one here on the Roe v. Wade situation and just the the big discussion in our culture about abortion and all of that. I'm going to touch on that a little bit tonight. But uh, Walk in Truth is the ministry. A Step Closer is the extra layer that we've added in terms of an additional podcast. So check that out when you get a chance. Exodus 24 is the text. Uh, So let's go ahead and stand together. And we're going to read the first eight verses. And I don't have my reading glasses with me, but I think I can manage. (laughs) Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, 24-1 of Exodus, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come nearer, nor shall the people come up with him. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and the ordinances and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down, verse 4, all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls and peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood, put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Let's just keep reading up to 11. Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God, and they ate and drank. Father, thank you for your living word tonight. We are desiring to draw close to you in worship, including our time in the word of God. Thank you for the music. Thank you for the fellowship. Thank you for the enjoyment that we'll have afterwards as we actually share some food together. Thank you for our teenagers, our kids, those who are investing in them at this very moment, our tech team uh, making this available via live stream, Uh, Pastor Shane, just all the servants, those who help with the food and the greeting and just everything. There's so much, Lord, that goes on. But we lay this time at your feet that you'd make us more like you and draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. amen. The blood of the covenant. Tonight we are looking at what's called the covenant ratification, or you could just say it this way, a ceremony to make the covenant official. And Moses is called by the Lord to come up to him. And we'll talk about the implications of that as well. I will tell you that if you've done a little study of the origins of the country uh, of which you are, I think all of you in here are citizens of the United States of America, those who would talk about the founding of the country say that a good portion of our laws and our setup was taken from the book of Exodus That's why we are called a Judeo-Christian nation, by the way, is because our founders pulled a lot of what they structured this government on from the book of Exodus, and it was very much covenantal. Also, we've gotten things from Rome. Rome was an incredible republic, and we would also say some things from Greece as well. But the founders, the the bulk of the founders being believers, did pull our system of governance, the three different branches and so forth, from some of these biblical concepts that we've been going through in the book of Exodus. And I bring it up because I want you to know something that's interesting about uh, who we are. We are evangelical Christians. Evangelical Christians, if you think about what that word means... The idea of an evangelical is a bearer of the good news. We are people of the good news. So we should never forget that. Evangelicals were abolitionists, by the way. It was evangelical Christians that stomped out slavery, both in England and the United States of America, saw an ungodly law, sought to dispel with it, and it took us longer than it should have taken, and it is one of our national sins that, thank God, were, it's in our past now. But abolitionists were evangelicals. They were pushing to get slavery done away with. They, they called it an evil. And I will say to you, in much the same way, the evil of abortion is now kind of on the table, right? And you've heard that there's been a leak, and I don't know if they've made it official yet, but that the Supreme Court is going to overturn, at least federally, the Roe v. Wade decision. And the Roe v. Wade decision, since that decision, I think it's been about 60 million plus babies that have died at the hands of abortionists in our country. Now, we only have about 330 million people in America today. So I want you to think about that number, around 60 million babies have been offered on the altar. That would be, what, one fifth or something like that uh, of the current population we have aborted. I remember uh, I was on a radio team with a group of pastors and a gentleman called in and he said to one of our pastors, we have aborted the kingdom of God. And I didn't know what he meant by that, but one one of the brothers that was on the broadcast said, I know what you mean, brother. And he was specifically talking about how many children we've lost. And uh, you've got to start by just thinking about it this way, that a nation is going to be reflected in its laws. Uh, Who a nation is, who a nation worships, what it believes will be reflected in its laws. And so if we have an ungodly law on the books, like abortion, on a federal level, that should be done away with. And, and I would argue that it's not even enough to say that it's gonna be up to the states, although that is a move we, we might say in the right direction. Now we do have people inside and outside the church that seem to be kind of torn or confused on this issue, almost thinking that if this holds up, then more people will die. I've, I've seen that uh, sentiment and that's just not true. The idea of back alley abortions before Roe v. Wade and all of that may have happened, but they were very rare. The heartbeat bill in Texas has saved thousands and thousands of children, just that bill alone. So quite the opposite is actually going to occur. We're going to protect the most innocent among us if we pass a law that would stop this once and for all. And people have been praying for a long time. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have compassion for someone who has a crisis pregnancy. That's why we have crisis pregnancy centers that have popped up all over the nation because Christians, evangelicals, and other uh, other expressions of the faith heard that criticism. And we realized, yeah, we need to do something that more than just being against something. We need to be on the side of those who are in crisis. That's always been the case of the church. The early church actually were saving children from infanticide in the Roman Empire when they would just throw their babies away. Christians were the ones picking up the babies and adopting them into their homes. This has always been the story of the church. We believe in just right laws, but we are also people of great compassion because we know how it is that we were saved, amen? And we know that if we were in the same spot, we would want the compassion of someone, not the condemnation but we've got, to, we've got to have a good balance of both is what I would say. I'll give you one analogy and I'll, I'll be off of this, but it's leading us into this section. Greg Koko once gave the illustration as follows. He said, say that you were in your backyard and you were digging in your garden. You had your back turned to your little child and your child came up behind you and you, you didn't turn around and said to you, daddy, can I kill this? Um, what would be your reaction you would turn around and say, kill what? Now, if there was a big spider on the brother's shoulder, you might say, yeah, smack it. Or if a bee was about to sting you, stomp on it. But if he was pointing at his sibling, you would say, no, (laughs) you cannot kill this, right? You have to know what it is. And once you know what a child is, which both in scripture and from science Life begins at the moment of conception. It's really indisputable. Uh, it doesn't matter what if you're in the first trimester, second or third trimester, that child, when the mommy and daddy's, uh, yeah, come together, um, life begins at the moment of conception. This is what you need to know. And this, once you know that that's a child made in the image of God, all other arguments end right there. Because if it is the taking of an innocent life, there are no other arguments that can be made. Even if you want to talk about extreme exceptions, they are exceptions. And uh, I think we know what they are. And even in those cases, that child, I, don't, I, I, I think you would all agree, is innocent and should not pay the price. Even though the circumstance may be extremely difficult. Once we know what it is, in fact, I would tell you that if in the first trimester your parent made a decision to go through a procedure like that, you would be gone. Not a potential you. That was you in the womb at four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, 20 weeks, etc. And if an abortion occurred, you would be gone. Not a potential you. You. So now it gets really personal, right? It's, not, it's out of the realm of philosophical argument and into the realm of life and death. And I will say, always saying, if you've been through this, there's no condemnation. Because many of us did things in ignorance. Many of us, you know, made mistakes and God's grace is there for us. But our country is so divided and so confused and if we can't get this one right, I mean, I just don't understand how how we can't understand this, how we how we don't get it. So that's all I'm going to say because Pastor Shane and I will do more on this. But this leads us into the covenant in Exodus 24:1. He said to Moses, "Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, Nadab and Abihu." and 70 of the elders, probably representatives of the nation. They may have been assembled in back in chapter 18. The elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. We're still here at Mount Sinai. Moses alone, however, shall come up nearer to the Lord, but they shall not come near, the 70 plus, nor shall the people come up with him. The people were to stay behind the boundaries that we had uh, talked about earlier when we studied the book. And now God is calling up This group of representatives. You have Moses, who will come nearest to the Lord, verse 1. He will come up to the Lord. You have Aaron, Moses' brother. He will become the first high priest of Israel. Nadab and Abihu are the two oldest sons. They will also be priests. You have the 70 elders, or the the, uh, ancients, if you will, probably representatives of the tribes. These are the ones on whom the blood is sprinkled that we'll talk about in a moment. And they are called to worship at a distance. Only Moses, Moses the mediator, Moses the go-between, the one, if you will, between heaven and earth that represents God to the people and the people to God. He shall come near to the Lord. They shall not come near. They, they have to worship at a distance. Nor shall the people come up with him. The, the rest of the masses, if you will, have to stay behind the, bow, the bounds that have been set up. Exodus 24 is a dramatic covenant moment. You could even call it an early worship service. And worship is all about meeting God. So you might say, why do we worship? Why do people gather in churches on Sundays and Wednesdays? We come to meet with our Lord, amen? Amen. We come to worship him, to draw near to him, and of course, to draw near to one another in fellowship. And so a covenant is going to be cut the blood of the covenant, if you will. And since covenant is a big deal in this chapter, let me define covenant. The Hebrew word for covenant is barit. It's spelled B-E-R-E-E-T. It is from the Hebrew word to cut. And it means that something sacred is taking place. That is a sacred relationship. In the Hebrew picture language, barit, covenant, literally means the sign or the cross of my son. It combines the bar, which means son, like bar mitzvah, the yud, which is kind of a grabbing hand, which would be my, and a tav, which if you look it up in Hebrew, is in the shape of a cross. And so when you take the original letters, it it would mean the sign or cross of my son. So the covenant, points ultimately to the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? And of course, we know that's where the ultimate covenant will be literally cut. Jesus will be cut for our transgressions, wounded for our sins. He will bleed the blood of the new covenant so that all the sacrifices you read about that may confuse you in the old covenant are all pointing to that ultimate sacrifice in Jesus Christ. Now, in 24.1, it says, Then he said to Moses, and what came before all of this is a um, treatment of the laws of Israel. The Ten Commandments were given in Exodus 20. Starting in 21 through 33, or 21 through 23 chapters, we have the covenant code, and uh, that's the kind of the everyday laws so look at the end of Exodus 23. Look at verse 32. Here's how the the previous chapter ended. You shall make no covenant with them, when you go into the promised land is the idea, and or with their gods. They shall not live in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Now, the end of the chapter on the covenant code the detailed laws coming from the 10 big laws, if you will, was a treatment on uh, the big things, like you shall not murder, you shall not steal, etc., and then everyday life experiences. How do you apply this law? And then it, it got summed up with a final warning, if you will. Make no covenant with false gods, 2332, and don't allow them to permeate into you and sin against me. Because if you you serve their gods, false gods, they will surely be a snare to you. How many of you can say, been there, done that? (laughs) Right? We, We know that there's the false gods of this world. If there's anything real behind those false gods, it's demonic. And if we delved into that, which many of us would have to admit we did at one point, they became a snare to us. And that's what God is warning against. He's saying, look, this is what will happen if you follow their ways. So chapter 24 now is ratifying the covenant or the covenant code. And this is what's happening in a ceremony uh, in terms of the teaching before us. If you look ahead just for a moment, it ends in a covenant meal. And this is how ancient covenants work. Moses 24, 9 went up with Aaron. And of course, the Christian church has followed this. We do potlucks and low-fat cookies, you hope, and things like that. Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 of the elders, 70 of the elders of Israel. And notice what happened. They saw the God of Israel. That is an amazing verse. And under his feet, there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Now notice that the only thing that's described is what was under his feet. Yet the expectation was, if you saw God, you would die. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they beheld God. And they ate and drink. Now, when a covenant was made, a covenantal meal was the kind of the end point of the ceremony. Much like if you go to a wedding, you will have a ceremony, and agreements have been made prior to the ceremony, hopefully in premarital counseling, and then uh, between the bride and groom, so they know all the expectations of going into marriage. Here's the old saying, put this in your pocket, Go into marriage with your eyes wide open. After you get married, keep them half shut. That's some great marriage advice right there. Can I get a witness? Anybody out there? Okay. (laughs) That was kind of a weak amen, but yeah. So uh, the concluding meal would be almost like the reception at a wedding. That might be the best analogy for us. First, the formal ceremony where the two, the bride and the groom, commit covenant to one another and do that in front of the covenant community, ultimately under God's watchful eye presiding over it. And then once it's all done, and remember the ceremony can even include the asking of a parent to give the bride away. And then if anybody has any issues with you know this happening, speak now, right? So there's a there's a communal aspect to it, and then there's the the formal covenant between the bride and the groom as they share what we call vows one to another. So the two parties are the seventy four leaders that we've just read about and the Lord, and they are entering into a covenant, and Moses recounts to the people all the words. Look at verse 3 of chapter 24. The words are Deborim. They're the probably a reference here to the 10 words of the 10 commandments. Exodus 20 verses 1 through 17 of the Lord. They come from the Lord. And all the ordinances. That's Mishpatim. That's Exodus 21, one through 23.33. That's the the more everyday laws. So if you're taking notes, the words are probably the Ten Commandments. The ordinances or rules or laws are the everyday life kind of stuff. And all the people answered with one voice. So Moses comes to them. He recounts all that he got from the Lord. And he recounts it to the people. And the people said all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will, we do. Great enthusiasm, covenant uh, pictures here. The people that agreed to do them all. How did they do? (laughs) And that's the good, right? One writer says, their enthusiasm is commendable. Their intention is undeniable. Alas, it will not be too long. In fact, chapter 32, until we hear these same people saying, all that the Lord has said not to do, We will do. (laughs) And all God's people said, ouch. Right? Because they made a declaration. They made an oath. And what's happening, to think about this in covenantal pictures, is the first thing that happens with a covenant is the terms are laid out, uh, verbalized, if you will, so that there is agreement on them. So what happened is Moses comes down he says, And these are the Ten Commandments. And these are the rest of the laws. And he goes through them. He speaks them orally to the people. And the people are, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll do it. We'll do it. Great. And of course, they they didn't keep the covenant. Uh, If one is to truly keep the covenant, the expectation is that you keep all of it, not part of it. Uh, this doesn't work by percentages. The people God was not looking for the people to say, "We'll keep 51 percent of the time the laws." James 2:10 puts it this way: "If you fail in one part of the law, you're guilty of what? All of it. Because the covenant itself is based upon two summation uh, laws. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So the moment that you would break one part of the covenant, the law, you would be guilty of the essence of all of it. Because you'd be saying to God, I don't love you enough to keep your law, and I don't love my neighbor enough to keep my hands off his stuff or his wife or whatever it might be. And thus the covenant is broken. So Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, verse four. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. Come back to that in a second. I want you to notice that first the law is verbalized. Here's what God has said. Here's the 10 commandments. Here's the laws and the ordinances of living out everyday life. You agree? Yes. Okay, now that we're in agreement, now they're written down because they're agreed upon first, then written down next, again, in covenantal order. This is the way the order would work. I had mentioned to you when we studied uh, chapter 19, the idea of a ketubah in uh, Jewish culture. It's literally a marriage contract. And that is that the uh, responsibilities of the groom and the bride are agreed upon by the two families and then written down uh, in a contract form, if you will. That's what's happening here. First, they're verbalized, then Moses writes them down. This is a sub point, but this is something to write down. This proves Mosaic authorship of what we call the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of Moses. This at least tells us and shows us the record when Moses wrote Exodus chapters 20 through 23. He wrote them down, you know, from the Lord. Exactly what the Lord said, we will do it. And then he wrote it down. This was captured as the word of God. And uh, we would submit to anyone who has a question about this, that we have good authority that Moses wrote the first five books. This is a section that gives you one kind of, Uh, you know, view of that, where he actually writes down Exodus. And some people would say, here's Exodus 19 through 23. Moses writes it down. Remember, he had uh, a great education in Egypt, great learning, etc. And so uh, this affirms his authorship. And uh, then here's what he does. He builds an altar at the foot of the mountain. You'll see this happen all over your Bible, just in rapid fire. Noah built an altar in Genesis eight twenty after he got off the ark. Abram built altars in Genesis twelve and thirteen. Isaac built an altar in Genesis twenty six. Jacob built an altar. We studied this on the drink offering in Genesis thirty five verse seven. Wherever you see worship of the Lord happening, an altar is built. Now behind me, you have an image of an altar. This is probably you know a. a It probably wasn't this well uh, chiseled out, if you will. may have just been a a boulder or something like that. But um, this is basically what would happen is an altar would get built. And what's an altar for? It's really for one thing, sacrifice. It's, It's literally an altar, a definition of an altar is a place of slaughter. So when an altar is built, it implies a sacrifice. And here's how this all fits together. Without a sacrifice, we can't draw near to God. Why? Because we're sinful people. Because we break his law, not just in our outward action, but in our motives, what we fail to do, um, in our hearts, right? And so the need for a sacrifice emerges In the picture of the covenant. So he builds the altar and then he does something else. There are 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. You could say it this way. The two parties are represented. The altar represents God and the 12 pillars represent the nation of Israel. Amen. We're going to see the 12 pillars uh, in Revelation 21 or they're on the gates I think is the way it reads. So there's Uh, a promise to the 12 tribes that carries all the way to Revelation 21, which is interesting when you think about um, God's plan for Israel in the future because you know that there's a debate uh, in terms of will God work again in national Israel? Well, the 12 tribes are showing up in Revelation 21. So that's just something to chew on. Jesus made reference to the law and talked about that the smallest letter or stroke would not pass away from the law until all is accomplished, Matthew 5, 18. And so the altar is set up, the 12 pillars representing the tribes, the two parties of the covenant symbolized here. And Moses sent young men, verse five, of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings. So now here's your sacrifice. And sacrifice young bulls as peace or fellowship offerings to the Lord. These young men, probably working under the uh, supervision of Aaron and Moses, and maybe even Aaron's sons, uh, get animals together, and they begin to sacrifice. And Moses took half the blood. I know this is kind of gross, but this is the way it worked. Moses took half the blood and put it in basins or large bowls. The other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Now, in the ancient world, when you made a covenant with another party, what would happen is animals would be actually cut in half. And there would be a ceremony. And this, uh, many of you remember in Genesis 15, this is what happens with Abram and the Lord. Abram is instructed to cut animals in half. He lays them out. And then he watches as the Lord passes through the animal parts. And you may say, well, what does that mean? What does the passing through cut animals represent? What it means is this. If I don't keep my end of the covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me, is what's being said. And in Genesis 15, the only one that passes through the animal parts is God. Abraham just watches. Why? Why? What's the picture? God made an unconditional covenant with Abram. And that meant that the covenant was wholly dependent upon the Lord. In fact, in that same chapter, it says these famous words Abraham believed in the Lord, and it, his belief, was reckoned to him as righteousness. What does that mean? It simply means that when you believe in the Lord, a foreign righteousness, not of your own, not of your own performance, gets placed into your account by faith. Abram, or Abraham, was saved the same way before the cross as we are saved after the cross. Amen? Amen. Abram believed in the Lord, and that belief was credited to him as righteousness. That's Genesis fifteen six. And then the picture becomes even more clear because only God passes through the animal parts, saying, I'm going to keep my covenant. I will be true to my promises. It's impossible for God to lie. Or as we studied Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you, he will complete it to the day of Christ. Now, notice the order. The first of the sprinkling happens on the altar, representing God, if you will. Um, So first, everything starts with God. Amen. (laughs) I mean, we're all here tonight. And I will tell you this, that uh, wherever you stand on what part you play in saving faith, I'll I'll put that aside for a second. You all know that God is the great pursuer of sinners, right? He seeks to save the lost. He, He pursued us, knocked on our door, rattled the cage, shook the bushes, <laughs> however you want to say it. And finally we're like, okay, Lord, right? I surrender. Well, it starts with the altar, the place of sacrifice. It, it represents in some way God, and that's where it always starts. Then he took the book of the covenant. So first he uh, puts a sprinkling of the blood on the altar, verse six, end of the verse. Half the blood he sprinkles on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant. This is probably um, the covenant code from Genesis, uh, Exodus 21, 1 to the end of 23. It could incorporate the whole thing. He took the book where it was written down and read it in the hearing of the people. Now you might say, this sounds familiar. Didn't they just hear? Didn't he just recount what he heard? And they said, yeah, 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 we, we do. We will. We will. Uh, yes, that's what happened. But now it's written down because first it had to be verbally agreed upon. Again, covenant language. Then it was written down and read again. How many of you believe in repetition is the key to learning? (laughs) I mean, we we study the Word of God, right? Uh, A lot of you have studied this passage before and we study books of the Bible and we're like, haven't you? You know, you ask somebody about the Bible and they're like, yeah, I read it. You read it. What do you mean you you, you read it? The Bible's alive, man. Amen? And we need to continue to get the word of God deep into our hearts. So he read it in the hearing of the people. Now, here's the formal reading of the covenant after it was agreed upon. All that the Lord has spoken, what do they say? We will do it, we will be obedient. Sometimes when I'm doing a wedding, I kind of want to slow people down at the altar just a little bit. <laughs> and you know, when, when someone's going to be married, uh, it is such a incredibly built up day. It's hard to slow a groom and a bride down. And I try to tell them, all right, Just try to drink in the moments, and don't rush through your vows, and slow it down, and downshift a little bit. Don't be, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember when Brenda and I were up there, I tried to kiss her before the, the kiss was supposed to happen, and the preacher shut me down. Oh, no, 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 no. And he was right to do so. I was out of order. So this may help you kind of get the order. This is what I will often say. Will you have this woman to be your wedded wife? to live together after God's ordinance and the holy estate of matrimony. Will you love her, comfort her, honor her, keep her in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, keep yourself only unto her so long as you both shall live? And he says, I will. I say the same to her. And then we do a formal vow. I so-and-so take thee so-and-so to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward. And then we go through the formal vow. Are you with me? First I speak kind of a verbal agreement and then we do the formal vow. That's where you could say the marriage is sealed in in the exchanging of vows and rings. Amen? Symbols, but very important symbols. And so this is what's happening. And the symbol in this ceremony is the blood. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. And said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now the blood does not get sprinkled until the formal uh, reading of the agreement is agreed upon. There's formality. There's a process. All things being done decently and in an order. And it's read out. And then the people said, We will. And then the blood. And this is interesting and perhaps gross, the blood gets sprinkled on the people. And I would imagine that they didn't have that powerful stuff to get stains out back in the day. So your clothes that you had on that day may always carry that stain. And maybe that's the point. Because as believers, we know there's great significance in the blood being applied to us in covenant. But our covenant is the new covenant in his blood. Amen? And so this is what's going on. This is the picture. They say we will, and then the covenant, the blood, the blood that represents a innocent um, substitute, gets sprinkled on the people. Now I want you to hold that thought in mind and turn all the way over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Hebrews is largely a commentary on stuff of the Old and New Covenant and Exodus, chapter 9. Let me show you just a few of the commentaries that the writer of Hebrews says in terms of rounding out the picture. He says, nine eleven 11 of Hebrews... When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, Hebrews nine twelve. he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained what? Eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling uh, those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, if they make you acceptable at least for the moment, how much more from the lesser to the greater will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience, notice, from dead works, to serve the living God. When you get saved, a cleansing occur- occurs. And it is the cleansing of your conscience. Now, of course, we say, yeah, you get a new heart when you're saved and all of that. But the thing that we wrestle with as people, knowing that God's law has been written on our hearts, our conscience bears witness, Romans two fourteen and 15, is when we violate our conscience, we feel guilt. Amen? In fact, the IRS, I don't know if it's still till this day, has a guilt fund. They get thousands of dollars given every year where they don't even know these people owe money and people give it out of guilt. Guilt is a very real thing because the law of God's been written on our hearts and our conscience bears witness. Conscience is a word that means with knowledge. Con is with, and science is knowledge. And so every time you sin, you violate your conscience. You sin knowing it. Amen? You sin with knowledge. You sin against the way God's wired you. Now you can do it enough times where you can sear your conscience. Your conscience can become a bad barometer if you continue to violate it over and over and over again, the ultimate uh, one that should lead you, of course, is the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. But this is what's going on. Um, this is what the blood of Christ does for us. The blood of Christ gives us this eternal redemption and cleanses our conscience. For this reason, look at verse 15, Jesus is the mediator of, here's our word, a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of what? The eternal inheritance. Skip down to verse 18 of the same chapter. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. This is directly now commenting on Exodus 24. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. According to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed without blood, and then very familiar to all of us, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Skip down to chapter 10, look at verse 19 of the book of Hebrews. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place, How do we enter? By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way, Hebrews 10, 20, which he inaugurated. Now he inaugurated the new covenant for us through the veil that is his flesh. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, not Aaron, not even Moses, but Jesus, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from what? Here it is again, an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Go down to Hebrews 12, final few verses to round out the picture. Look at verse 22. Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. I was reading a commentary this week, and the writer was saying that in the Christian church, We're saved by the blood of Jesus. The moment that we repent and receive Christ, we are born again. We have the righteousness of Christ. But the ceremony that symbolizes us being in the new covenant with God and with his community is what? Baptism. It's baptism. Now, I will be careful to say that baptism doesn't save you. We all know that. But baptism is the ceremonial aspect of entering into the covenant. It's the symbol of entering into the covenant. So I hope you can see the parallel. The sprinkling of the water or the immersing down into the water now becomes a picture of the covenant, the new life of that individual as they come up out of the water. But they do it in front of the covenant community, and now they belong to the Lord and to his people. They are in covenant. That's why when someone's gonna go into a baptismal, we often say, have you received the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Yes, I have. Have you committed to follow him all the days of your life as you make this public confession of faith? Yes, I do. Into the waters of baptism you go. The ceremony that celebrates the covenant. And now we, of course, have something else we do. What do we do? We take the matzah, and we take a cup of juice, And we remember the new covenant in his blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel, speaks better than the blood of bulls and calves. In fact, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away your sin. But the blood of Jesus takes it away once and for all and for all time. Amen? Because at the cross, he was wounded for my transgressions pierced for my iniquities It is through faith in the blood Romans 325 that I am saved The blood of Jesus, which speaks of the death of Jesus, that he died as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for my sin is where all of the sacrificial pictures are pointing to the ultimate lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Amen? And this first covenant was simply, you know, it showed the desperate need that the people could not keep the law, right? Yeah, 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 we'll do that. Yeah, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll be faithful. Yeah, 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 we promise. I promise, I promise. Cross my fingers, hope, whatever. In rapid fire. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, Ephesians 1.7. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, Ephesians 2.13. 1 Peter 1-2 says, Jesus Christ, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. 1 Peter 1-2. And Revelation 1-5 says, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And it can be a little strange when you first hear some of these things and you're like, Man, I remember I was preaching on, on some of these topics and a gentleman who's gone home to be with the Lord said, it was a bloodbath in there. <laughs> it was blood, there was blood everywhere. And he had this way about him. And, uh, but he was saying he, how much he appreciated it, understanding what had happened. That Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the types and shadows. All to do what? To lead us back to God. That's why He came. That's how much he loves us. Amen? Now, I'm going to invite you, uh, if you're a believer in Jesus, to come down and participate in a moment of communion. Pastor Shane's going to come up and sing nothing but the blood for us. And the way we do this is uh, we invite you to just make your way to the front. Um, There's a table with the elements right below me. And uh, to have a moment where you remember What Jesus has done for you. If you're new to the things of the Lord and uh, maybe you haven't opened your heart to Christ yet and made it official, made it formal, this would be a great time to do that. You may say, how do I do it, Pastor Michael? Well, here's how you do it. You say, Lord, I'm repenting of my sin. I'm turning from that and I'm turning to you. And in a formal moment, I'm going to declare that I belong to you and that I'm no longer going to live for myself. I'm no longer going to live for false gods. I'm no longer going to live for the stuff of the world. I'm turning my life over to you. Something like this. Would you bow your hearts? I believe, Jesus, that you came into this world as God in human flesh. Pray this if it's you. And pray it now. I believe you came into this world as God in human flesh. I believe that you fulfilled the law and lived the perfect life that I could never live. I believe that you died on that terrible cross as my substitute, taking my punishment that I deserved. I believe that you rose from the dead just as you said you would, conquering death and bringing life and immortality to light through your gospel. I repent of my sin I'm sorry, I've sinned against you more times than I'd like to count, but I am turning to you and what you've already done for me at the cross. I believe in you, I ask that you would save me, give me a new beginning in Jesus. Let me be born again to that living hope in Christ, amen. And if you are a prodigal, maybe you're watching right now, via live stream, and you've been wandering, maybe you've been confused, follow him. He'll lead you where you need to end up. Just come on home. And for all the saints here, Lord, may you bless them as they partake of your supper, which remembers the new covenant in your blood. May you be honored in the way that we honor you in these last moments in Jesus' name.